Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Value Guys Stock Talk Show with the Value Guys. I'm Val Hughes. And I'm Momentum. And we are 31-year Wall Street veterans who have had to take on secret identities and go underground in order to provide you with our candid views on a handful of stocks that we screen for here in the shop each week. You've seen our faces on TV. You've seen us quoted in the news, but our bosses would never allow our unfiltered views on the air. So we've disguised our voices, and they'll never know. Uh, this week we've done a screen that uh, I think maybe for the first time in Value Guy history, we've actually done a, a momentum screen a momentum in screen. honor of Mo. Uh, but I've tried to go through and find some values, so we'll have some interesting conversation. But before we get to that, a couple of important caveats. First, this show is for entertainment purposes only. That's not a guarantee. Secondly, Mo and I are professional analysts during the week, and we do a lot of careful fundamental analysis. We do, we're just talking about this, we do 10-year models on all our companies. We talk to management, we talk to competitors, and here we've been very careful to do absolutely none of that. Uh, so, uh, you know, do your own work. Uh, third, we may not have your best interests in mind. Our lawyers say to remind you that we, we may accidentally recommend you do the opposite of what's best for you, so seek outside professional counsel somewhere. And fourth... And it's certainly true this week. Uh, I've been drinking a little bit here uh, uh, after work, I have to say. You know so, what? <clears throat> I love your office. It's the only place that, that stocks vodka well, it's for the with show. the cookies in the kitchen. Now, see all our caveats at www.thevalueguys.com, uh, and you'll see, I think, indexes to all our past shows, everything we've talked about, and there's uh, links into our you know, past lives. charts and uh I think earnings releases, all kinds of cool stuff. So check that out at www.thevalueguys.com. And also, don't forget, we now uh, we have a Facebook page, Value Guys, or uh, Val Hughes has a page. And then we're on Twitter at Value Guys, and basically tweeting when we put up a new show. Uh, sometimes iTunes takes a little time. So really, the first place you'll get a link to the show, even before my wife's had a chance to edit it, is at Twitter. Uh, at value guys so check that out and you can also now track our movement on gps on gps and yeah. there's a garmin app and uh it's for your iphone so you go to the armin cap but right right in uh right when you get into the app it's going to ask you value guys is like the second question yeah. you say yes and now you will know where we are 24 7 because of the gps um little transmitters that we're 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 wearing as part of the show now. It only works in, in the city? Or what, like, what if we're out camping? World, if, worldwide, wherever it's worldwide. we go. worldwide. Okay. I mean, these are 22,000 low-orbiting satellites, that's cool. and that's how they're being tracked. All right. Well, uh, this week we do have, uh, a, I think, a pretty good uh, couple of stocks. you got three stocks coming out of this momentum screen. And I'll just – I put a note here what it is in case you're interested in that. It is uh, companies that uh, I think it's – Let's see. I think it tends to be larger cap. We didn't really put a screen on that. I think it's large cap. But it's uh, sales growth better than their industry. All right. Okay. And it looks like uh, about 500 companies may have passed that. Then we had uh, operating margin higher than industry median. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Um, expected EPS growth greater than 10%, all, you know, decent fundamental screen items. And then here's the one that I don't know, 52-week performance better than the S&P 500. So uh, that's what makes it a momentum screen. 
Um, and we'll be back with uh, three stocks. Here's the ones we chose out of that screen. It came up with 70. So each of those uh, filter items, about 500 stocks passed, but only 71 stocks passed through all three of those filters. That and I we've been uh, talking about those 71 stocks before the show. Yeah, well, in uh, over drinks. Yeah, so that got a little out of hand. But here's what came out. So listen up for that in a minute. McKesson Corp, MCK, ResMed, RMD, and Union Pacific, UNP. But before we get to that, our favorite part of the show, Value Guys, Wall Street News, featuring Momentum. Mo? Thanks, Val. Sure. Um, editorial note here. Oh, really? Okay. So today's group, today's screen, we screened 700-some-odd um, stocks. What we narrowed it down to before we, the pickings really got serious was eight stocks. We did do that. Eight yeah. stocks came through the screen. Here they are. Right. Yeah. Now, you value guys often position yourselves as the brains versus our guts. You know, you're the guys that get into the weeds, do the analysis, get to the income statements, balance sheets. Numbers guys. The numbers guys. Yeah. <clears throat> and we're just, we're looking at charts, Chart we're going watchers. with the flow. So yeah. we're the guts and you're the brains. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Well, I want to, I want to, I want to, okay. I want to point something okay. out about our eight companies tonight. Yeah. The fact of the matter is we're closer to each other than you think. Really, Mo? Really. That makes me happy. Because... The fact of the matter is, in all these cases that came through, <clears throat> the, the charts were the all stocks all, all stocks doubled. Well, that's why they're momentum. Exactly. Yeah. However, listen to this: all of the stocks had huge fundamental improvements. Union Pacific made yeah. the cut. Yeah, it did. Their five-year growth of sales five percent. You know what their EBITDA did? I do. It was continuously moving up. Twelve. Yeah. Twelve percent. Yeah. Dollar General made this, the, the cut. Yeah. Sales were up 10%. EBITDA was up 31. All making margin improvements. McKesson's. Yeah. 5% sales, 13% growth in EBITDA. Yeah. yeah. Right? Over a five-year period. East, yeah. Eastman Chemical actually had a tiny decline in sales, but EBITDA was up 5%. Granger, uh, their, their, their sales growth was a 6 EBITDA growth was 12, and on and on and on. Yeah. Every one of these stocks had real, solid, fundamental long-term gains over this period, yes. which is what drove the Mo. So yes. I'm only looking at it from one side, yes. which is interpreting the results of your studies, and you're actually doing the studies. We're both looking at the same thing. Yeah. My job's easier, though. Well, you know, <laughs> here's I, I think that's a good point, that uh, stock pickers do come together I mean, value guys like growth, and they don't mind good charts. I mean, that's how ultimately you make some money. But um, tastes great, less calories. You know, but typically what happens is, as the fundamentals are improving, and as the stock price catches up with that, the opportunity to you know find an undervalued stock goes down. Right. The right. expected return, if you will. I, I will. I well, will. If you will, I will. So I think, but here's the thing about these stocks. It's interesting, the ones that, you know, we both kind of came up with, is they do have good momentum. Uh, Incredible, but actually. But the fundamentals are improving 
at a faster rate than the stock. So in that regard, in some cases, the valuation has improved uh, while the fundamentals have gotten better, and that may very well be simply due to the likelihood that things are about to stop being good. But, you know, th th that's an interesting point, Mo. I, so we I are, we're a little more aligned on that. Yeah. Anyway, news. News yeah. today. Oh, news. Excellent. C CNN, Pew, research poll out today. Um, Obama is uh, leading Romney in um, Ohio by 47%. Now, I wonder what that 47% is. I don't know. Well, actually, a national survey, which is just out, also says Obama is leading Romney by 47%. Yeah. And I have to believe it's by the 40 47%. And I have to believe it's the 47% that Mitt Romney pissed off in his speech a few weeks ago. <laughs> so this is, this is no coincidence. Huh. That's a... This uh, is the way it's lining up. That's a uniquely wide... Uh, yeah. Our pop... Well, you know, we have been talking about this in-trade. Here is up on, and I just got to tell you something. Listen to this. Since September, Obama, 78 to 55. That's what's happened with the stock price. Romney, 20 to 45. Val, you said it last week, you know, like him or not, Romney's made us money. He's making you money. He's you could have bought Romney at about 10 cents a year ago, yeah. and now he's in the 40s. And I know the, you know, the stock market's done well, and I think I read yesterday, I mean, the U.S. equity markets have been the best-performing asset class in the world the last 12 months. And for all you hedge fund people, you know, hedge funds are having a terrible time with these low interest rates and correlated returns. It's actually small cap value and growth. The small cap space has had a tremendous, uh, you know, period over the last year. But even with that, the best investment I'm aware of has been buy Romney at ten cents, sell him right now at you'd be, forty cents. You'd be a seller here. I'd be a seller right now. Really? Because when if he loses, it's zero. That's true. You can lock in a quadruple right now in Romney on in trade, and I I'm not predicting a Romney loss or an Obama loss. I, I'm just saying as an investor, it's a binary. So. In about two weeks, somebody's at zero. Well, right? I just have to, in all truth in advertisement, I just have to tell the listeners that I recently gave Val a um, risk tolerance test. And it's actually, a, it's a very uh, sophisticated one from uh, Finmetric. And uh, the idea is there's about uh, 60 questions that they run you through to find out what your risk tolerance is. And we use those for high net worth individuals. Yeah. Um, so we know when we craft a portfolio, we're, gonna, we're not right. going to get too risky for them and freak them out. You you scored a normal guy scores about a fifty five and that means you're normal. More conservative, <laughs> you might score forty. Normal mo. You Come scored on. ninety. You don't. I'm telling you something. You, you have you were you're a swing for the fences I'm guy. I'm not at all. I'm telling you, if you spend a career researching and managing small cap portfolios, you will get a ninety because the key skill, and I don't want to give anything away. I mean, for you people in college. Stay in. There are some good things there, too. But the key thing is you can't let your emotions drive your actions. You have to stay, uh, you know, basically in the fundamentals and ob objectivity is the key. And if you, there's studies out there that show that the mutual funds that people own over time deliver some return. It might be 10% or 9%. 
But the people that are in those funds earn, I think, half of that or less because they buy and sell at the wrong time. So the actual record of the fund is, you know, as it goes on, regardless of buys and sells. Um, but the individuals, their timing obviously enters in, and it wrecks returns. It doesn't help returns. So um, you have to get used to that. And I think that I remember that test mo. Every single one of them, I answered just purely on an expected return basis. But what happens is, for some people, but that, that math, knowing that math, and being it wasn't math. Being, no, it, but being the being the an analyst you were actually yeah. took you to the absolute edge of the possible return. stratosphere. Yeah, on the return side, because you stayed oh, in yeah, even yeah. though it looked risky. Well, maybe that's we should tell the consultants uh, that they're going to look at your. I phone. don't know. I don't um, know. Last observation today. Interesting poll out. Uh, what states have the highest 1%? Since we're talking about 1% and 47%. Who now, has the most of them? Who has the most of them? And you know what? Do you know what you need to make a year to be in the 1%? Well, that's a good question, Mo, because it depends. You know, the top 1% on net worth no, this versus yes. top 1% on income, these are very different things. Exactly. And yet we're all talking about top 1% on income, and yeah. I just say... That, I mean, it is a big deal, but the real one percenters are the one percenters with the, with the net worth because right. that sustains. Right, but on the other hand, the reason that they're saying one percent is these are, they're, when they're talking, they're talking within the context of wage earners, not net worth. Yeah. They're not comparing, no, I know. you know, but, Fred Flintstone with... Uh, when you're a one percenter, I mean, and some people don't appreciate this, if you're a one percenter on net on income, yes. next year you could be a 99 percenter because you had some big achievement, you made a movie, you got Absolutely. a bonus, whatever it was, well, and next year you're on the street or no one likes you, so it's a little different, but anyway, I just interjected that. Go ahead, Mo. What's, What's the number? What I think it's around... Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess it's around four hundred thousand dollars. Ooh, you are good. Three, that, three, three hundred and forty-three thousand. Three forty. Okay. So if you if if a uh, few out there make three hundred and forty-three thousand dollars a year, you are in the one percent. I'm surprised that it's. I thought it was higher. So I will listen to this. This is interesting. So the top ten states of one percenters. Yeah. Obviously, you got a third. It's sort of a third, a third, a third, which gets really? you to nine. <laughs> and then okay. there's one and left then there's over. Random stuff, yeah, there's random stuff. Um, so it's a third, a third, a third, and the top three would sort of make sense. They're the biggest states: California, New York, and Texas. Texas, okay. I mean, yeah. oil. Yeah, yeah. But you well, know what's interesting? Right. Texas only has fifty-eight hundred people making that much no money. No way. I was going to say I would have thought Florida. No. Florida's not Florida even, on wealth. Yeah, but not. But yeah. So it. But okay. Texas only has five thousand eight hundred and ninety people. There's only five thousand eight hundred and ninety people in Texas that make more than three hundred and forty thousand dollars a year. That is right. That's right. Now listen to this. The next one, two, three states: Montana, Illinois, and Connecticut. Yeah. On average, they have twenty five hundred people. Each. Each. No way. Way. Um, and then the next third, Wisconsin, Wyoming, and Rhode Island. Wait a minute. By Mo. the time you get down to Rhode Island, which is number nine, the number ninth state, they have 
Rhode Island has 260. Are you sure about that, Mom? I read it. Let me, it was on the internet. Well, here, here, let me let me just suggest something. Let's say you're in a city in uh, Texas, like Houston. Yeah. And there's, uh, I mean, how many people are in Houston? Four million. I'm telling. I don't know. Let's say there's five million people in Houston. Okay, I'm just going to do the math. One percent of that would be like fifty thousand. Yep. So how come it's only so that's not the top one percent? Maybe that's the top one of one percent. Well, these were people that they called the one percent, and they said it was if you maybe had... it's households or something. Uh, that's that's amazing math. Yeah, Ver- Vermont, according to this uh, survey, only had one hundred and thirty-five people. Now you know the other thing is a lot of people might make very large money, but some of that's sheltered. Yeah. And so I don't know what percent of uh, above these kind of a numbers would be people that are somehow earning some income that's not showing up in these wealth numbers. But at any rate, we do know Vermont has 135. We know two of them. That is amazing. Oh, we know two of them. <laughs> well, that's probably true. And so. they are. Shout out to Ben and Jerry. Ben and Jerry. <laughs> so those we know are two of the 135. <laughs> you and. should get those guys as clients. Don't give out their last names. Let's keep that for ourselves. Anyway, so uh, so we're we're going to talk about some stocks. And what's what's fun is that I feel vindicated because not only are the not only are the charts amazing, they've all doubled recently, but the fundamentals are actually looking very I, good. You know, I thought this week. So would my make job's you happy. done. I get to sit back, and you get to do. No, the rest I thought of the you'd show. have a happy week. Cause look at all these charts, right? Oof. I'm yeah. telling you, you look at this, he's salivating. <laughs> so, uh, okay, well, let's get into it a little bit. Um, we ran a screen. I mentioned the items, but if you've fast-forwarded to this point, uh, what we're looking for is, it's a, I think it's a large-cap screen. I can't sadly be sure of that at the moment, but it looks like it was. Uh, sales growth better than industry median. Operating margin higher than industry median. Of course, that it could be going down, but it's still higher than industry. But in our case, all of them were going They're up. They're going up. Yeah. That's true. Expected EPS growth greater than ten percent. It's pretty good. And then the Mo part, fifty-two week performance better than the S and P five hundred. Which I was just looking. The S and P five hundred this year, uh, or twelve weeks, twelve months, is about fifteen uh, percent. So that means all the stocks we're talking about today. I'm just checking at 12 months. Okay, 12%. All the stocks we're talking about today had a better than 12% year-over-year return. Um, and we sat here and looked through 71 names to come up with McKesson, ResMed, and Union Pacific. And let's start with McKesson, ticker MCK. Again, this got through our screen. So it's, you know, an above-average performer on margin and sales growth or whatever I just said. I forget already. Um, and they have an above average um, margin. I guess I'm repeating myself. What these guys do is they are pharmaceutical distributors. So, um, you know, the uh, unit demand for pharmaceuticals is going up with population, maybe a little more than that um, because of the, you know, demographics of the population. And they simply uh, have warehouses with Billions and billions of dollars of product, and um, I had the fortune, you know, many years ago to tour some of these facilities, and it's amazing. It's all automated. They do order checking by weight. 
stuff conveyors take them right onto trucks that are going to hospitals, doctor's offices, and uh, in some cases, drugstores and things like that. McKesson, I believe, is the largest in the business. There's a few others around, uh, such as uh, Cardinal Health, which is a great company, Amerisource, Bergen, uh, and Owens and & Minor. And I think those are the primary distributors. This has been an industry with a lot of roll-ups the last 15 years. Um, the thing I like about this, because it's not the momentum, uh, is just simply what a great company this is. They're putting up um, upper teens, low 20s return on equity. Uh, they have returns on assets in the you know mid-single digits, but their sales turns are nearly four times, a asset turns, sales to assets, and that's a result of these giant warehouses. Now, here's something interesting about these companies. You say, well, Val, they're, uh, they're, they're putting up an EBIT margin of, you know, 2%. Right. How good is that? And a gross margin of 5%. I mean, that doesn't seem good. Okay, right. But here's the thing about these companies. They take giant, uh, you know, orders of drugs coming in on giant pallets. They don't even unpack them sometimes. And then they just turn and send them off to hospitals and things like that. Well, at the moment they take ownership of that, that's hitting sales because they turn they buy it as cost of goods and then they sell it but they really are in a markup model and they're really a service company just a logistics company moving these things so if I buy a hundred dollars worth of pharmaceuticals and then I sell that for a hundred and five that means my margins five percent my gross margin but the truth is the way I look at it as a service company they earned five bucks and they made a $2 margin on that. So as a service company, they're actually putting up a 40% margin on the first revenue they get, which is they get gross income because the other stuff is just a pass-through. And so uh, when you look at it as a service company, these guys are remarkably efficient. They put up uh, a great uh, return, and it's because of their asset turns. And then aside from all that, I'm looking at the valuation. Eight times EBITDA, and when I look at you know enterprise value to EBITDA, I'm really looking at a cash flow yield. So one over eight, twelve and a half percent. To me, that's a twelve and a half percent cash on cash return. If we got all our buddies to buy the company, and then you get some growth. So you're going to get population growth in the ages that use medicine. So that's in the older ages. Uh, population growth there, I think, is higher than in the younger ages because you've got longevity uh, increases going on as people are aging. So they actually have a, a bigger growth, and people are living longer. And, you know, it's, it's a unit-based business. So while uh, drug prices go down because of patent expirations, so there's a whole bunch of drugs that are going to go off patent. They're going to get 80% cheaper. That should increase their demand. Uh, aside from the demographic increases. And so I think you've got that wind at your back. And it's eight times EBITDA. I'm going to give this thing, uh, it doesn't grow a lot, but on EBIT they've been growing, you know, 15%. I don't think that's sustainable. So I'm just going to give them five. But that means my total return, cash on cash, 12.5, growth of five, I'm at 17. The long treasury is at two. To me, that's a buy mo, so I like it. McKesson. Yeah, I like, you know, I'll, I'll, I, 
I just noticed something as I was reading through. Um, you notice on the uh, on these uh, charts that we print out, and uh, this is from Factset. Yeah, it's very rare because you're a value player, and um, so you have a big influence on the names we pick. It's very rare uh, for us to come up with average rating from Factset of overweight. Very, very rare. Yeah, that's right. Do you know that not only is this McKesson rated uh, an overweight, so are our other two candidates. I think yeah. we've had, I always look at that, just like, what are these guys saying? Do they like it? Not that I let that color what we think. Yeah, no, I understand. I, I, I tend to be a little more contrarian than this, but uh, these things look attractively priced, well, even with it's, the, the It's interesting because we rarely, I, I mean, I think we've had two two times in the last year and a half that we've had a stock that we were sort of saying, hey, this is interesting, let's look at it. And it's had an overweight rating. Tonight, we're at a trifecta. What does that tell you about uh, ratings, though? A little momentum. Maybe, maybe it thing. tells you we're getting better. <laughs> no, I mean, I think Wall Street, you know, again, the main thing, if you're a Wall Street analyst, and Mo and I have had many years of this, the main thing is, because it's really a great job, pays pretty well, the main thing is don't get fired, whatever you do. That's I mean, right. you cannot do that. So, no one has an incentive, or few people do, to really stick their neck out and have a contrarian call. And so, analysts tend to kind of bunch up with ratings. This one, because it's going well, all the things I just said, it's an easy one to rate a buy. And if the stock doesn't go your way, you kind of have an excuse. It's like, Look, look at that chart. Look how good everything is. So momentumy stocks are oftentimes a momentum-y. good place. Momentum-y are often a good place for analysts to hide around bonus time uh, because you're not really sticking your neck out. And so this type of chart, I think, you know, I, I, that, that's something I actually don't like about the stock is you got 16 analysts. They're all overweight. I don't think all of them are overweight. Well, Actually, I know two of them, and they're, yeah, they're, they look pretty, pretty shape, normal. Yeah. So, but, I know. mean, it's overweight. So if these guys turn, so here's the thing. One bad quarter, again, these guys are all going to line up like lemmings, you know. I mean, there'll be a few, you know, gutsy analysts who kind of have some swagger at the conferences, right? You know what I'm talking about. You don't mean it's Paul like, Lemming, do you? Yeah. No, do you know Paul? I no, do know. I don't mean Paul. That they didn't but, mean that kind of a lemming. No, the, the lemmings that jump off oh, together. The yeah, the animal lemmings. Sorry, yeah. yeah, and so I think that that's my biggest negative on this is simply that it's overweight. But on the other hand, as a value guy, what I'm going to have to be careful of in this one is I think it has some good room to move. There's some really strong fundamentals. It's low risk. That's what I like about it, and I'm just going to have to be careful to not let that valuation get too high. So it's at eight times EBITDA. In the last five years, it's been at 11 times. I think the fundamentals right now could get people excited enough to bring it back to those old levels. And I just want to, I'm going to punch that into my database and I'm going to sell it when it gets to the high end of the enterprise value to EBITDA range. Unless that happens because earnings have collapsed you know how that can happen. Yeah. Earnings go down, the stock doesn't, the multiple goes up. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about continuing earnings gains, the multiple gets out of hand because of enthusiasm. I'd sell it. i got to be disciplined. On All that. right. On a, on a lighter note, let's move to our next stock.
lighter note? Yeah, lighter. Oh, okay, lighter. Uh, was that it? That get heavy? What comes? What comes? What comes before Union? Res- Q-R-S-S. Yeah, ResMed. 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 Ticker R-M-D. So, again, came through the screen we've talked about. It's done better than the S&P the last 12 months. This is a stock I first ran into, I mean, literally uh, nearly 20 years ago at a conference, uh, the old CSFB healthcare conference out in Phoenix. And they were a much smaller company, uh, billion four today. They are a medical products company that helps people breathe. Uh, and I remember seeing all their equipment. I'm sure it's much more, uh, uh, you know, modern now. This is a long time ago that I witnessed it. But they help people breathe, sleep apnea, other breathing disorders, respiratory problems. They help people. Uh, I think breathing it's you know, important. is it's important. A, it's a element need, it's of It's a need, living. not want. Doesn't need, not want. Like uh, gross margins in the high 50s and very stable. So that tells me they have a monopoly in some way and a very stable pricing model because... This gross margin doesn't move off a dime. It's like 59, 59, 59, 59. EBIT margin, 27, 27, 27, 27. So yeah, yeah. something here is like clockwork, literally. Uh, they're running a net margin in the <coughs> excuse me, upper teens. Return on assets in the, you know, it started a decade ago in the, in the single digits. It's moved consistently higher. 12% return on assets, 15% return on equity. A decent balance sheet, 15% debt to cap, or 14%. Um, so all that checks out. Consistent sales growth. They were uh, $700 million five years ago. They're a billion four now, 14% compound growth. And then here's one where I've had to make a giant exception, uh, Mo, on my traditional valuation criteria. These guys are putting up 14% sales growth. The gross margin suggests to me they've got something very proprietary in the breathing area, which is obviously so critical. Smokers need this stuff, ex-smokers. And so there's a whole bunch of, you know, baby boomers that smoke that are going to come into this unfortunate period where they're going to need a lot of this stuff. And sleep apnea is, uh, you know, an increasingly recognized ailment. So they're involved in this in a big way. I'm, I'm going to pay, I'm sad to say, 14 times EBITDA, which is about as high as I ever get. But here's the thing. 1 over 14, 7% cash-on-cash cash yield that beats treasuries. And I'm not saying this is as, you know, has the credit uh, of, of treasuries, but pretty good. And then I'm going to get growth. And I'm not, again, I'm, I'm taking 7% from the cash flow I'm going to say I might get 10% from growth, not counting on it. Uh, some of that growth is a cushion because I am happy to earn 7 or 8% with no risk. But if I get the 10% growth, and they've been putting that up for a decade, I'm going to have a total return here, again, in the upper teens. And I like that very much. So um, interesting, you know, interesting stock to recommend as a value guy, but, you know, the thing about a value guy is you want stocks that go up, and this one looks like it might do that. And, you know, a momentum guy wants stocks that go up, so we, you know, we both look at the same thing. You know, um, one of the things I'm looking at is a little confusing, and, and uh, sometimes you can just, thank you, sure, so, my sometimes pleasure. you can make a, um, make 
two very compelling cases out of um, incomplete data. Let me give you an example here. We're looking at a sheet. It's from, um, it's from FactSet. And uh, at the top of the sheet, it says that ResMed has a 1.6% dividend yield. Well, I look at that, and the first thing I do is I start looking and saying, well, how, you know, can that, div what's the, what's the history of that dividend? On this page, there is no dividend listed. Mm. So, we need so. to find out, what about, what can we find out about the dividend giving, given this kind of conflicting data? Here's what you look at. Look at capital spending. From 2006 to 2009, the company was spending about 80 to 100 million dollars a year in capex, and since 2010, the company's been spending more like 60 million in capex. That means their big capital expenditures possibly have come down dramatically. If the uh, if it's a typo and they don't really have a 1.6 percent yield, then it's they're really paying zero dividends per share. Chances are you're going to see dividends. Unless there's a big uh, investment opportunity for this company, their, their capital costs are coming down if that's permanent, and uh, their dividend has done extremely well, you're going to see a dividend. If, in fact, they do pay a 1.6% dividend, I think the same trends, the same criteria would suggest that that dividend's going to increase. So um, one way to sort of get around... Well, incomplete data when you're looking at it. Just ask yourself, if you look at it from both perspectives, do you end up in the same, at the same place? So. Well, that's an interesting thought, Mo. I just was checking out on, uh, on the screen here. I, I can't uh, confirm or deny whether they actually have a the dividend. dividend. But no. that's odd to have a dividend yield but no dividend. But, so. you know, the fact of the matter is, the, no matter how you look at it, no matter how you, uh, how you slice these, you come out to the same place. So that's what's most important. All right. Last up, um, and this is an old favorite, Union, Union Pacific. Pacific, ticker UNP. This is the company that brought the railroad to San Francisco. And, so, and uh, you know, if you if you actually look or over Sacramento, I forget where they went. Exactly. If you um, if you actually look on your sheet, which is interesting because I didn't know this. I'm a New Yorker, so the company was founded in 1969, which meant that they actually probably got a railroad out to San Francisco at around 1971. In the 70s. That's right around when they were finishing the freeway out there. Uh, yeah, you know, that's got to be kind of a typo. Because you think? Union Pacific. Because I know San Francisco isn't yeah. really nearly as developed no. as New York, and I just well, thought maybe we had just started the, to <laughs> get, the get the railroad out there and building. I've never yeah. really been there. I no, mean, that's a good idea. Why would I? Um, no, I think that it was... Uh, been around uh, longer than yeah, that. Yeah, there's a couple... There's some good books about that whole railroad building phenomenon that in I the, believe was... In the 70s? Uh, in the, in the 70s, yeah. And it was great to watch. You know, I remember we took we took a, you know, 640 acres out in Nebraska. We watched them build that railroad right through the back. And yeah. a lot of Indians uh, back then. Yeah. My grandpa... He They're still there. Lost, yeah, are lost still there. his uh, scalp out there. But uh, anyway, Union Pacific... <clears throat> Railroad. What do I like about railroads? Well, for the first time, I mean, here in the shop, we have a lot of uh, railroad, uh, you know, themes in Enthusiasts. the portfolio. Well, for the first time in, you know, literally 100 years or since the truck was invented in the last few years, railroad infrastructure and capital spending is moving at a, you know, higher rate than uh, for trucks and road infrastructure. And the reason is fuel costs are such a level where, 
um, you know, the efficiency of railroads is just a winning. And the other thing that's happened is railroads, which 100 years ago, you know, didn't know what service levels were. You know, they were going to come into town around Tuesday. They finally gotten to where they can kind of make four-hour delivery windows and things like that. So they've been brought into the modern era on logistics and customer service, and they've got this giant cost advantage. So they've gained share, and uh, these guys are putting up a, as you can see here, Mo, a consistently improving EBITDA margin, 26, 29, 30, 34, 38, 37. I guess you could technically call that a downtick. And then 41. And on the EBIT line, again, 18, 20, 23, 24, 29, 29.32, return on assets, single digits, but moving up the whole time, ending at 8. Return on equity last year, 18, this year, 19. And debt to cap, 30%. They've got that well covered. Enterprise value to EBITDA, so cash on cash return, it's nine times. I do the inverse, 1 over 9, 11%. And in railroads, you have to pretty well count on you know, GDP kind of growth, maybe a little bit less because you're hauling the kind of stuff that's not the fastest growing stuff. So, uh, but the good news is, or maybe it's the bad news, it's good news and bad news, the good news is these guys I think are the, one of the top, maybe the largest railroad in the country or second, I can't, I don't know for sure, but they're not going anywhere and neither is the advantage of rail. So again, this isn't a treasury, but I will suggest that even if the United States government can't pay you back for whatever reason, these railroads are going to be delivering coal, wood, furniture, whatever it is, cars all over the country, and you're going to get paid. They're also putting up a, a dividend yield of 2%, which is pretty good. But I'm looking at the 11% cash-on-cash return, a GDP-type growth of maybe 3%. So I've got a 14, 13, 14% total return, um, with the way I might look about it, almost no risk. Because do you need a railroad uh, to stay warm and eat? Yeah. So Union Pacific, ticker UNP. What do you think about that, Mo? Kind of quiet over there. I am kind of quiet. Uh, um, here's what I was looking at. I was getting my thoughts together. Um First thing I was looking at was, you know, this is a this is a railroad company. So when you have a company that's got, uh, you know, steel and rolling stock, and you, you do want to say what's going on with their assets. And uh, if you go back, you look from like 2009, their assets have gone up and have gone up pretty, pretty consistently every single year. At the same time, their long-term debt has been trending down ever so slightly, and not surprisingly, your assets are going, you know, your assets are going up. Your debt's going down, and uh, so your book value per share has been going up, and it's gone from 33 to 36 to 38. It's now, you know, it's like 42, 42 and a half bucks a share, which means this is a stock trading at 2.9 times book. I don't know. You said there's a lot of railroad themes you're starting to look at. Is that a big number per book? Is it reasonable? Well, book is it these low? days is so dependent on uh, how many write-offs that they have taken. You know, you can't really rely on Real book. book anymore. I do know that, uh, I don't think it says it here, but, you know, a number of years ago, um, Warren Buffett bought Burlington Northern, and he kind of brought a little bit of 
you know, uh, you know, just good, thoughtful financial expertise to these railroads, which are hundred-year-old companies. I mean, the reason there's a bond market is because of the railroads. That's how, at least a corporate bond market. That's how far back they go. And I think that there could have been a lot of, uh, you know, write-offs and such, which would help your return on assets. Like you see this consistent improvement in return on assets. I want to say that's due to improved productivity. But if you look at the assets, uh, have they been growing slower than capital spending? If so, then you know they're taking some write-offs on old equipment and things like that. I know there were a lot of acquisitions the last decade where, you know, there's fewer railroads now. There's been a lot of combinations and, you know, maybe a lot of write-offs of duplicate track and things like that. So I and are they through that? Are they through that cycle? Or are they through this this part of the uh, the steep part I, I would of the depreciation so. cycle? In I would which think case, so. then you'd you'd see a resumption. So is that two times two point nine times book make them look to you as a value guy? Not on book, it does not. Okay. I mean, I don't trust that book. To me, Got book it. book, you you just have to look at the uh, you know the the, the incrementals uh, in terms of you don't know what's in that book because it could be. Is there a hundred years of stuff in there? I mean, I looked at the rails but if we're twenty to, years but if, ago. But if we're going to assume that we're in the we're, we're in the final stages of the, the cleanup cycle, maybe we at what point do you begin to believe in the book? Begin to see well, that. Well, one way a, to check the book is just to check the ROE. So they're doing a twenty percent return on equity, and they're saying the book is so that's and the, and the stock is trading at uh, what'd you say three times book? Yep. So if if book were if the stock were trading at one times book, then the book would be uh, three times as big, right? Yes. And then the return on equity would be one third as big. So all I need to do is say, hey, let's write up some of those assets, and I've got now a one times book, and I've got a six point five percent return on equity. So one thing I always do to check the validity of the book is to say. If I bought a bunch of stuff right now with money from right now, what return would I get on that? And I have to believe that if you went out and had to duplicate the assets of Union Pacific Corp, that you might earn a 6% return. I mean, that doesn't sound Wait like a, a crazy minute. low number. Right. And here's, here's the thing. You can't duplicate a lot of these assets because some of these assets are rights of way right so, so right so in that case the, maybe the book has validity because they have little monopolies of gates and things that you you know you can't possibly unless you want a railroad coming through your backyard because you're going well, to try I wouldn't to mind that personally but no i mean i think your point's very valid mo it could be that the book is really it is really worth four times be because undervalued. you could never duplicate that in a million years right. i mean if you owned you know new york harbor you owned it uh, what would it be worth? I mean, a lot. Know, My family actually does, does own a well, not well, all. Of that it. would explain a lot. A lot actually, of it. Mo. So, but that's my thought. I think I don't look as, at book as much anymore because I don't know what's behind it. But um, I, I do think the book in this case it could very well be worth four times book. Some of these assets right, they which got is 150 where, years ago. Right, you know, which is where that where that saying comes from. Yeah, you can't judge a book by its cost. by its value. By its value. Oh, value. Yeah. So is that the end of that our That is. Uh, okay, that's all our stuff. Hey, so, guess what we got printed out? Well, first, I, I, do you want to have a favorite, or should we save that for the very end? Oh. Maybe the very end. Let's save it for the very end. Very end. Uh, this is the part of the show where we like to do paging through national economic trends, and in a crazy twist, 
this week I actually printed them out in advance. That doesn't mean we've Looked taken even a moment to look at them. Yeah. So yeah. we'll be right back after we've had a chance to look through uh, the national economic trends from the St. Louis Federal Reserve. We'll be right back. We're back. We're back with uh, paging through national economic trends. That was kind of fun, Mo, don't you think? The paging? break? Yeah, the break, you know. It's good to take a break. Um, this segment of the show provides the listener with everything, and I mean everything, they'll ever need to know about then, the and, U.S. economy. And then some. And even more than they want to. Right. So we've paged through it. This is from uh, Federal... Reserve Bank of St. Louis. All this is free at the website there. And it's just something I recommend everybody go and do to be uh, in the know about what's happening. Right. Wouldn't you say? Right. So what jumps out to you, uh, Mo? Anything? Well, you know, here's, here's something. I read something a couple of days ago. I don't know. I'm going to give a, a heads up to, to our listeners. Check out uh, Harry Dent, D-E-N-T. Okay. He's got a, a bunch of stuff on the web. He's interesting. Now, this is a, this is a Harvard guy. He got his own firm, and um, basically his mantra is that um, demographics are destiny. Here's what he means. Yeah. By, here's what he means by that. He says forty-six-year-olds are the peak spenders in our economy, and they've been the forty-six-year-olds have been the peak spenders of in our economy, going dating back to the late nineteen twenties. Hmm. Well, you can demographically track. Those peaks and troughs, just sure. the way you can track the people used to say the baby boomers are like the pig going through the python, yeah. demographically. Well, you can track those. And what he said was it is exactly why the country slowed in 1930, and it slowed again in 1970, and it's slowing now. And he tracks out these 40-some-odd-year these intervals. Yeah. No, I believe that. Between the big and uh, So he's saying... We are we are about to go through a massive deleveraging, as the as the, we move out of this this forty uh, five year old peak phase of spending, and uh, the country ages, we all stay home, we don't spend as much, we don't buy as many cars, we don't travel as much, we don't buy new houses, um, and he just says we will not see another boom until twenty two twenty. Twenty two twenty. Yeah. He's got quite a forecast machine. 46, 46 some odd years. He says that. He said, oh, 20. If, you, now if you just keep going up and down and up and down and up and down. Now he makes modifications you mean 20, for 20. What? That's not 46 years. That's, that's 200 years. 20, 20, 2020, sorry. 2020. Okay. Yeah. So eight years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No. I mean, the amount of. So you of can money, hold on. You can hold on that long. I did this calculation a few years ago. I can buy into that a little bit. Um, so much money was lost in 08 in terms of capital that went into homes, uh, investment securities. I mean, we've built some of that back. But if you went in and looked at how much debt it took to run the economy versus how much debt came out of the economy, it looked like you did have a four- or five-year period just to rebuild the losses. And so the, the idea that certain uh, segments of the population by age drive different things. I mean, I always thought that a good reason why you had a lot of inflation during the 70s was just household formation. All these baby boomers 
were turning the ages where they wanted their first car, they wanted their first house, they wanted their, their kids needed their first school, all these kinds of things which drove a demand for goods that outstripped the capacity for goods. Well, so well, everybody yeah. kept, you know, bidding up the prices. And they were borrowing money to do it, and I, and then it, and then it came down during the '80s and went the other way. Here's a here's a Harry Dentism because what you just gave is the conventional wisdom of what was happening in the 1970s. Dent would say that some of that inflation was caused, believe it or not, by teenagers. He said, what do teenagers do? They consume. Do they produce? No. Does a teenager buy a car? Do they buy well, a no, lot I, of I, I buy that. It's just so that was demand, household yeah, demand exactly. that exactly. was outstripping capacity because uh, you know the economy wasn't used to that sort of growth in demand per household, right. and it outstripped capacity. I believe in that. So Harry Dent, he's an interesting guy, and, and uh, no matter how you look at the numbers, whether you're looking at them from an academic standpoint or from a practical standpoint, it's, a, it's another layer to look at when you look at the sort of the demographic. Yeah. Does he have a chart in there or something? He has. Mr. Uh, Dent? you got to go look at his website. He's got charts and graphs. Charts and graphs. Well, I, okay. Thought-provoking. I, I got something here. Yes. Um, well, first, the unemployment rate, which we've been talking about. It just continues to plummet at its highest slope since 2009 going down. So uh, fudging the numbers? Uh, no. Um, economy continuing to improve? Yes. Yes. So that's one thing. Then I thought it was interesting on page five, and a lot of people maybe don't think about this, you see this report for GDP growth. It hits the paper. A bunch of pundits say, oh, that's too good or that's not good or what have you. They have a, you know, a bunch of commentary about that. The fact is, that's not the real number. And then when it gets revised, it's rare that that makes the headline. And yet these changes can be big. So back in the second quarter of 2011, we probably all got the headline about how anemic the economy was because it was only growing at a 1.1% annual rate. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. There's been three revisions since then, and we now think that it was growing at a 2.5% annual rate, more than twice the rate that was reported. In the third quarter of 2011, the headline probably hit and said, hey, we're growing at 2.5%. No, we're not. Three revisions later, that was 1.2%. It happened in the fourth quarter of 11. The reported number was 3%, the actual 4%. First quarter of 2012, a little more stable. They originally reported like 2.1. It looks like it's 2. And the second quarter of 2012, we've had three re two revisions to the original number, 1.5, then 1.7, now 1.3, what have you, waiting for the next revision. But... If you're a GDP growth follower, and there's millions of them, I mean, let's face it, it's an, a very popular thing to track. A lot of people think they're actually tracking GPS yeah. and they're tracking GDP. G yeah, whatever it's the reason. It's easy to get that confused. Uh, but those are that's something to look at is those revisions because they can sometimes do people them. Do people lose their jobs over that or is that just? Uh, no, they're government workers, so, so just of course not. Although I just want to point out, this has nothing, this is, Value guys wouldn't international. It be great if we could re, wouldn't it be great if we could revise our, um, you know, our, our buy recommendations retroactively? Once it's in print, you're pretty well dead on that. You know, I had originally said buy nine weeks Did ago, but now that me? I've gone back and reviewed <laughs> the data, I actually said sell. Was I misquoted by what? the sales force? Why can't I we do that? that. I, <laughs> if we could do that, it would be great. Well, I, I want to interject something based on what you said. Value Guys International News, okay? I saw this in the news the other day. I couldn't believe it. In Italy, 
some seismologists didn't predict an earthquake properly, jail. They're going to jail over that. Yeah. And I hope that tendency to jail, you know, what, what would the word be? Uh, prognosticators yes. who don't get it correct, I hope the tendency to jail them does not come into the, uh, you know, the uh, analyst community. Well, you know, the, the problem with uh, jailing them when uh, they fail to uh, announce or fail to detect an earthquake is uh, you, now you've just opened Pandora's box because if they do predict an earthquake <laughs> and it doesn't happen and you've Jail. got all of these costs that you incurred because you evacuated the towns and you left yeah. your houses and all so, you know, the, you're damned yeah. if you do, you're damned if you don't. Welcome aboard, scientists. Yeah, come on now over. Now you know how we, we feel. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay, back to oh, national, paging through national, national economic, economic trends. trends. Okay, I had another one here. What page you on? Uh, I'm skipping ahead to uh, page nine, Mo. There's 400 pages in this report, so maybe we Well, there's not to... really. There's 30, but this is page nine. And there's a little something, and I believe I talked about this last time, Consumer price index, um, and sometimes the consumer price index can have an impact on bond yields only because people don't want to lose money when they buy a bond. They want to keep even at least or better with in inflation. So we've got a long bond right now that the, I think the 10-year is 1.5 and, and the 20-year is 2.5. Anyway, uh, and, and of course the Fed pumped so much money into the economy. Now we've got the last two bars on this chart. Look like the World yeah. Trade Towers. Well, they do, unfortunately. But it's 7% year-over-year growth in the consumer. And in the producer price index, which some might argue is an important input into the consumer price index, less some labor at the consumer service level. But this grew 20% last month, 22 and 14 this month. I don't know what pig is going through this poke. It could be... Energy prices, I suppose. Uh, but um, that's alarming if it ends up getting into bond yields. First, it means you're earning a negative return right now. But it also means if you have a long-term bond and this starts getting into inflation, uh, and this inflation gets into bond rates, the principle of your bond is going to go down in value. We are going to a luncheon this week. To talk about that. This weekend. So... We'll, we'll check in. And what let else you know. do you have, Mo? Anything? Um, 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 um. Ah, hey, here's an here's a here's an editorial. Um, page thirteen, personal savings rate. Thirteen. Yeah. I just talked with a couple of the, uh, the kids in our office. They're they're young kids and they make a lot of money. I was um, I was working on some financial stuff, and I had to to fill in a, a blank. What was my social security going to be? And I'm old enough that I should care, but I never looked at it. It's like two thousand dollars a month, social yeah. security. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. It's going to basically just cover your Medicare when you retire. I and then Medicare's free. <laughs> by the time you buy your Plan B, fill in the donut hole, buy your drug prescriptions, et cetera, et cetera. No, it's not free. What and if your wife's working and she pays for it? Can that work? Well, if you have yeah. a, you know, that's what's, you know, you have two or three wives, then, yeah. uh, then they can all chip in. Well. But at any rate, so page 13, personal savings rate. Hey, wake up, America. 4%? Guess what? Well, you're not going to be saved. But it used to be two. Oh, so uh, well, that was 2007. Yeah, yeah, that's not too bad. But it's but when you think about it, most financial planners say you should be saving 15 percent. So what you don't want to do is think that you're going to get Social Security, things going to be okay, because it's not. Yeah. So start putting that money away. 
that's good advice. Uh, I just have one more quick thing here because I see the show is getting a little long here. Uh, and that is just to reiterate that the economy is just consistently improving uh, in most metrics, not employment, because I think there's lots of reasons why you don't have to rehire Betty that you laid off three years ago because her job is now being subsumed by what the Internet and all these apps can do. But things like on the demand side, vehicle sales right now are on the highest pace they've been on in, uh, I don't know how far back this chart goes, but certainly in three years, at a 15 million annual rate. And you know, new homes, same thing. New homes, you know, kind of bottomed out at the uh, beginning of 2011, new home sales. Yeah. 25 million. It, 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 we call what, this a what? hockey stick. 25 million. 25.25. Sorry. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. No, this is now accelerating. Look at, at that hockey stick. pace in, again, a long time at a, uh, it's approaching a 800,000. No, I guess that would be, which scale would this one Well, that's be? why I thought it was maybe. Yeah, no, this one, on the housing starts, it looks like it's about a nine, it's approaching a 900,000 annual rate, which uh, the peaks were, you know, in the in the 2 million, but getting back to 900,000 a few years ago was 500,000, so that's great news. So, and, and then finally, the Michigan Sentiment Index, University of Michigan. It's, again, moving up at a very rapid pace. It's now at the highest level it's been at since... Uh, Pre-crash, so in the which is great. The only thing I about seven. Yeah, but you know, why do we care what consumers in Michigan think? Well, the fact that they're getting optimistic. Uh, Are they a leading and, indicator? Well, yeah. As a and, state, and they, they they're doing a survey mo of of everywhere in Virginia not, of all states. Oh, uh, it's the university. Yeah, never mind. Call. Never mind. So anyway, uh, that's all we have this week. I got to get home. I'm getting a little hungry. You must be hungry, Mo. Thanks for listening in. Um, to uh, the show, uh, we've had three pretty good ideas. We better say our favorite for Phil. I don't know if you had a favorite. I did. Yeah. What was it? I forget what we talked about. We forgot our Let's stocks. See. Here we go. I got them here. Uh, you want me to go first, or do you want to go? Well, you can go first. I know what mine is. Okay. I'm gonna say. Want to say it at the same time? No. All right. No. I'll write mine down so you know I'm not cheating. Right. Okay. Go ahead. Union Pacific. Woo. McKesson. Oh. Yeah. All right. We're so, on record for that. Seems a little more certain. Anyway, see uh, see all our past shows, indexes, parents, pictures, etc. at www.thevalueguys.com. Thanks for listening in, everybody. Have a good week.